Um, tomorrow is, uh, is Memorial Day. I think uh, you all know that. Uh, kind of marks the, I don't know if it's the official, but certainly the unofficial beginning of the uh, summer travel schedule where people will be uh, traveling. I know um, some of our harvesters here have gotten a head start, have already skipped town to go to the beach or where, wherever it is that people go. Um, we here at Harvest will be um, going to a lot of different places throughout the summer. I think a lot of us will be going to, some will be going to Korea or to their own motherland, the place where they came from, uh, to visit family and friends. Some will be going to retreats. Um, other people will be going, the D- Dominican Republic missions team is leaving in less than a month now. Isn't that crazy? Less than a month, they will be in the Dominican Republic, God willing. Ecuador team will be going out. Uh, one of the things, when you travel away from home, one of the things that uh, we try and do in order to make that travel more bearable is to make that place feel like home, right? By bringing things from home there. So when we go on retreats, a lot of our young uh, gals will bring like their entire bedroom pretty much with them. They'll bring pillows, they'll bring blankets, they'll bring stuffed animals that are like the size of human beings and all kinds of things. And they'll set it up in order to make it feel like they're at home. We do this for um, wherever we go, whenever we travel, something to make travel a little bit more bearable, to make, the re- the, to make that reality of being away from home a little bit more bearable. But whether it's a mission field, a retreat, a camp, a conference, wherever it is that we are, as soon as we see something that causes a little bit of discomfort, we're quickly reminded that we're not at home. Whether that be the cockroach on the hotel room floor or the bed bugs that bite you at night or there's no soap in the bathroom and you don't know where to get soap or there's no toilet paper, you don't know where to get that. As soon as suffering comes, as soon as discomfort comes, we realize very quickly that we're not home. And what suffering does, not only does it show us that we're not home, but it should cause in us a longing to go back home. I feel this way on every mission trip that I'm at, especially when the bathroom conditions or the sleeping conditions, the showers are not warm. Um, A little bit of discomfort reminds me that I'm not home. Not only does it remind me, but it makes me want to long to be back home. As we've been going through 1 Peter, um, the Christian's guide to the galaxy, that's what Peter is telling us. He's telling us first and foremost that if you're a Christian, you're not at home in this world. And the reason why you face suffering and you feel these things is because you're not at home. And as soon as we begin to realize that and we begin to experience that suffering, hardship, whatever it might be, The instinctive longing of our heart should be, I want to go home. I want to be home. I want to find out where home is, and I want to get there as soon as I can. That's the longing of Peter as he's writing to Christians in Asia Minor, telling them, hey, you're not at home. Don't settle down like this is home. And the discomforts in your life are telling you that this world is not our home. That's kind of been the theme throughout the book of 1 Peter. We're going to continue reading 1 Peter and pick up on that theme and talk about how we're continually, how we live in this world in light of all of these things that we face as aliens and strangers. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 3, um, verses 13 through the end of the chapter, um, verse 22. This is God's word. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ 
may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who's gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is God's word. There's a lot of text here, and there's a lot of seemingly disjointed things. I'm going to try and bring all of these things together by saying that the main theme of 1 Peter and the theme of this passage is just in one word, it's persecution, okay? Persecution. What does that mean? Persecution is not the same thing as suffering. It involves suffering, but persecution and suffering are not synonymous with one another. And a lot of times people say, well, I'm, I'm being persecuted um, this, is the, this is the cross that I have to bear. And we say, well, what's going on? And they say something like, um, I got into a car accident the other day. Or I got fired from my job. Or um, I'm suffering this, this pretty bad sickness. I'm, I'm, I'm going through such persecution. Um, because they're a Christian, they feel like this is persecution. Right? That's not persecution. That's suffering. Okay, we'll give it you that. That's hard. And that's suffering. That's not easy stuff to go through. But that's not persecution. Persecution, as the Bible defines it, is when we suffer because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's when we suffer for the sake of being a Christian. Right? It's what Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. It's everyone gets sick, everyone loses their job, everyone goes through these common things. So persecution is not suffering, it's suffering that comes because we bear the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to talk about persecution. I want to try and make it as, as applicable and practical and, and bring it as close to home as we can in order to help us to understand um, what this uh, has, how, how relevant this passage is for us today. So three thoughts about persecution. Here's the first thing about persecution. Persecution is the examination of our faith. He begins in verse 13 by saying something that he's been saying the whole time. He says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? In other words, he's saying, hey, do good, because if you do good, nobody's going to hurt you. No one's going to mess with you. No one's going to bring you trouble. But then he jumps in and he says, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Okay, so basically, here's what he's saying. Hey, do good. After all, if you do good, you know, we talked about this last week, three ways to respond to people. Someone does good to you. No one's going to give you evil back. Right? If they do, they're demonic. But he says, hey, do good. No one's going to mess with you. But then he says, actually, sometimes they will. Right, you do good. Sometimes people will give you harm. You do good. Sometimes people will treat you with evil. It's what he says in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Okay, the tense that he uses, and I, I, I'm not going to go deep into the Greek because I don't know it. And two, it's not going to make any sense to you. But the tense here is called the present optative form. Anyone ever heard of that before? Okay, Josh Chang, good. I'm just kidding. Okay, no one's ever heard of that before. It's the present optative form of this verb. Okay, well, here, here's what that means. It means even though you're not experiencing this as a daily reality, the circumstances are right that it will one day happen to you. 
even if this may not be part of your present reality, the circumstances are such that it will very quickly be possible that persecution could erupt at any moment where you suffer for doing what is right. Now, in most places, we don't understand this, but in most, I say most places throughout the world, the people of God pay a great price in order to follow him. Did you know that? 150,000 people every year are killed for their faith in Jesus Christ throughout the world. The conservative estimates say about 200 million Christians around the world every day, 200 to 250 million Christians around the world daily face threats of death, persecution, suffering, beating, imprisonment. And it's 200 to 250 million Christians and another 350 million throughout the world have suffered and have uh, experienced some kind, of, uh, some kind of insult, some kind of uh, a loss of, of, of opportunity uh, at work or at school, in their families, because of the fact that they bear, bear the name of Christ. This is hundreds of millions of people. These, so here's what, in one sense, what it's saying is these are our brothers and sisters. So these people, the, the middle-aged man in, in Pakistan who's suffering for his faith, right, that's our brother in Christ. And as he today somewhere, uh, depending on the time zone, has already worshipped, will, will soon worship, he, that's our brother in Christ. And, and what the Bible says, as a brother in Christ, that suffering brother in Pakistan is closer to us than the family member, blood family member in your life who's not a follower of Jesus Christ. That this is our family, right? This is the body of Christ. This is our new family. And the person who suffers across the world is more a part of our, of our family than the person, the American person, the Korean person, African-American, the, the Mexican person, whoever it is that we see every day and that we consider to be our best friend. There's websites, and, and I was reading on one website that, that deals with the persecuted church this week on, on Wednesday. And it just basically aggregates all of these different news reports of persecution throughout the world. I looked on Wednesday, the 23rd, and just had a list of all of these articles in Somalia. Did you know that in Somalia, you could get, for being suspected, even if there's a rumor of you being a Christian, you could get arrested in Somalia. If someone just, you just hang out with a Christian, even if you're not even a Christian, you just hang out with a Christian, you could get put in jail. In Uzbekistan, okay, there was this man in Uzbekistan, he was worshiping with his friends. They fined him. He refused to pay a fine, so they threw him in prison for worshiping with a group of friends. It, Pakistan, you, you name it, all these different places, and there's just website after, we, or, or just hit after hit of different news stories talking about the persecuted church. And what Peter's saying is to the people in Asia Minor, you haven't faced this yet, maybe, but the conditions are ripe for this to erupt in your area very quickly. And he's saying the same thing to you and to me. Saying, look, the, the situation is not here in America where you're persecuted for your faith, but he's saying the conditions are ripe where it may happen and very soon. You know, I've been, I've been saying this for the, for the last few weeks. But yeah, increasingly it's getting closer and closer to us where we're being persecuted, not physically, but verbally being persecuted, assaulted for being a Christian. 
You could be any other religion. You could be Buddhist. You could be Hindu. You could be Muslim, and, and that's fine. But as you stand up and say you're a Christian, people start making fun of you. People start making fun of us. They start saying that we're, we're outdated or we're, we're not with the times. Peter's saying, look, if you should suffer for doing what is right, you're blessed. Because here, here's what he's saying. Persecution is going to be an examination of our faith. Right? That's, that's where faith is going to be tested. You see, I don't know, you know we, especially as you go through final exams, those of you who are students, we don't like this idea of being tested or, or having a, an, an exam. But without exams, we don't really know what the reality of our situation is, right? You could think you know algebra so well, but when the time of testing comes, the time of examination comes, that's when you really know if you know this stuff or not. That's when you see what's really inside of you. Yeah, you know what? I'm great at algebra. How come you got an F on your test? Maybe you don't know it as well as you thought you did, right? You might think your health is super good because you can run and you could do all of these things uh, four miles a day. You can run, you can play basketball, you can play lacrosse, you can play football. You could think your health is fine, but when you go to the doctor and you take these exams, blood tests, cholesterol tests, that's when you find out things that you didn't know about yourself and you realize, you know what, maybe I'm not as healthy as I thought. The persecution is, is an examination of our faith. It's where our faith is tested. We realize, do we really believe what we believe? And here's what he says. When that time comes, verse 14, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. He's actually, he, he, so he's saying, look, in, in a dominant culture, the great majority of your culture doesn't believe in Jesus. You're a small minority of people who do. They're going to threaten you. You're going to do good. You're going to follow Jesus. And they're going to treat you with evil. He says, when that time comes, do not fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. Okay, what he's, he basically, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8 when the Israelites, very similar situation, this, this tiny group of people being assaulted by the Assyrian Empire. And Peter is writing, quoting from Isaiah, telling the people of Asia Minor that you're not the first ones to be in a minority situation that are facing, that will be facing persecution. And when that time comes, don't be afraid. So think about this. You're being persecuted. As they're doing it in some country, I forget which country it was, but I read the other day that um, in, in one country, they're pulling people, they're searching uh, homes of people, pulling people out of their homes and seeking after them, looking after them. If they're a Christian, then um, they're going to arrest them. If, if that happens, you're sitting in your home in, uh, in Dr. Phillips, you're sitting in your home in Orlando, you're sitting in your home in, in Winter Garden, just kind of hanging out and someone knocks on the door and they've got a bunch of people and they've got guns. They say, look, are you a Christian? We heard that you've been going to church. We heard you were at church on Sunday. Uh, and they've got these guns and they're holding them up. They say, are you, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? So this is what's happening all, all around the world. And this is potentially what's going to be happening. Soon it would happen. It would be the first of 10 major uh, empire-mandated persecutions over the next 250 years. But he says, in that moment, he says, do not fear what they fear. How can you not be afraid when, someone's, when your life is in danger? And he's telling, how, 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 how can you face those things? How can you face the threat of imprisonment, suffering, right? your eyes being gouged out? How can you face these things and not fear what normal people fear? Here's what he says in verse 15. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. What, 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 what is he talking about? In in the Roman Empire, you could stand up and you could easily say, Jesus Christ is God. And nobody would think anything of it. Why? Because they had many, many, many gods in the, in the Roman Empire. But as soon as you stand up and say, Jesus is Lord, your life is in danger. Why? 
Because in the Roman Empire, there was only one sovereign, and his name was Caesar. And the catchphrase of every Roman citizen, you walk around wherever you go, you say, Caesar is Lord. That's it. Caesar is Lord. So as soon as you stand up and you say somebody else is Lord, you have become insubordinate. You've become a traitor. You've become a threat to the government. You've become a threat to the Caesar. You become a threat to the Roman Empire. As soon as you say Christ is Lord, you're putting yourself, your life in danger, being at risk of imprisonment. Here's what, that's what he's saying. How do you not be afraid in your hearts? Set apart Christ as Lord. He's saying, look, that time of persecution is not here now, but it's, it's coming. And if it's coming, then here's what you've got to do now. In your heart, you need to decide and set apart that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. That's what he's telling us to do now. He's saying Caesar isn't Lord. Caesar may dictate that your life is in danger, that you get thrown in prison, but Caesar is not Lord. You, have, you serve and you worship a Lord who is higher than that, and you've got to believe that when persecution comes. You've got to believe that your greatest authority and allegiance is not to the Roman Empire. It's not even to the Jewish state. It is to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And you need to decide in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and set him apart in your own heart. That's what he's saying. Time and human history is not going to be divided before Caesar and after the time of Caesar's life. It's before Christ and after the time of Jesus' life. He's saying Christ alone is Lord, and you need to decide in your heart that Christ is Lord. And all of us probably may say that. All of us may say that, but he's saying persecution becomes the true test and the true examination of your faith. Right? Is Christ really the Lord of our lives? If that means that our families have to suffer, if that means that, that I have to suffer, is Christ really the Lord of our lives at that point in, in, our, in, our, in our lives? When persecution comes, he's saying it hasn't yet happened. It hasn't been unleashed as a reality, but the time is ripe for it to come. And so in preparation for that, how will you not fear then? Saying here, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. See, I think that the hard thing is that because we haven't faced this kind of persecution in America, a lot of us give easy lip service to this idea that Christ is Lord. But, and I'm not even talking about persecution. When suffering comes, when hardship comes, that's when we bail. Like when, that's what it is. When, when I get sick, okay, God must have abandoned me. When I lose my job, when things aren't going well, when my friends start gossiping about me, right, that's when we, we no longer is Christ Lord for so many people in America. And Peter's not saying, yeah, we need to go and find out, seek out, look out for persecution. He's saying, no, that's going to happen regardless. If you, if you stand your ground for Christ, you're going, going to be persecuted for following him. That's life in a fallen world. He's saying, don't go and seek out persecution by uh, you know, doing something stupid so that people will yell at you and then, oh, my faith is being tested. No. He's saying, be faithful to Christ. Right? Do good. Be a good citizen. Do what you need to do. And when persecution comes, that's when your faith is going to be tested, right? You take a test. That's when you not only re it reveals who you are, but it tells you where you need to, you need to improve. So here's persecution in our, in our day, the simplest level. Are you willing to, in school, at work, when everyone is eating lunch, are you willing to close your eyes and pray, even though people might make fun of you? That's tiny. That's nothing. 
But if, we can't, if we're not willing to do that, that's, that's our examination right there. Are we willing to do that even if it means that people are going to make fun of us? If we won't do that, then I don't think we're going to lay down our lives for Christ. I think it was D.L. Moody said, if Jesus Christ isn't Lord of all our lives, and he's not Lord at all in our lives, are we willing to be ridiculed for it? Are we willing to stand up before our, our college uh, professor in our public speaking class and to testify to why Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world? Are we willing to go to our friends and, and, and like Shino shared, he said, it's not easy, but I'm telling my friends about Jesus. Are we able to do that? Even if it means being ridiculed, even if it means being made fun of. That's, that's a test. The test isn't, I, I say this all the time, but the test isn't what we do here when we're all believers. And you don't get persecuted for following Christ. You, in fact, you get lifted up, you get honored, you get praised for following Christ. But when persecution comes, that's when the examination of our faith comes. Are we willing to say, you know what, no, I'm, I'm not going to make fun of that person when everyone else does. Why? Because that's not what Christ would do. This is where, this is where it, our faith is tested. Right? Persecution, the examination of our faith. That's the first thing that we see here. Second thing that we see. Persecution is an opportunity to spread the gospel. Verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Saying, look, if you're persecuted, most people, if you do good, you get treated with evil. Right? You get upset. You get bitter. You get defensive. Saying, as you suffer evil for doing good, is respond with the hope that is really alive in you. You see, here, here's a reason why. Because most of us are drawn to the unusual, aren't we? Aren't we drawn to what's abnormal? That's what headline news isn't made because... Um, normal stuff happens, right? News is made because people do things that you don't expect them to do. It's because um, not, maybe not the, the breaking news, but the feature news stories are always about people who do something out of the ordinary, do something unexpected. About the person who gets beat up, they get mugged, and then they give their jacket and they give their food and they buy a home for the person who beat them up. Things like that that make the news. Why? Because we're drawn to the unusual, we're drawn to the unexpected. Movies make a killing off of this bait and switch where they pull out the, the rug from underneath you and say, oh, you know what, you, you never saw this coming, but here's what happens in the movie. Right? This is what movies are made of. This is what news are made of. That, you know, when I was growing up, I used to love the, reading the Guinness Book of World Records. Why? Because I love seeing like the tallest man in the world or the tallest woman in the world. Pictures of that were like amazing to me. Like this lady who's like so tall that her husband like only comes up to her hip. And I would like look at that and say, oh, that's so funny. And I would always wait for the next year to come out to see if there's someone who beat her, someone taller than her. So I can look at another picture. But for years, it's always the same picture. That's why we're drawn to things like that. The, the, the smallest person in the world. or where, I, I always liked the person with the longest fingernails in the world. And I was like, man, that guy is like insane. It is crazy, right? You look at these things and you're like, oh, that's weird. But at the same time, you want to keep on looking at it right? because it's unusual, because our, we're drawn to things that are unusual, to things that are unexpected. Here's what Peter's saying. When you get persecuted for your faith, for doing what is good, for doing what is right, but you respond with hope, and people can't overlook that. They begin to, to take notice. And so he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to 
give the reason for the hope that you have. They're going to ask you, why, how can you respond in that way? Because be prepared. Right? Have an answer. Tell them why. But then he says, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Verse 17, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Why? You see this throughout Scripture. You've seen this throughout history. You ever study church history? The gospel have, has advanced in greater measure when there was persecution than through any other means that God could use. Daniel and his three friends, Daniel's three friends, right? They're thrown into a fiery furnace. And this, I mean, they're always an example. They're a great example. And for doing good, they're being treated with evil. Always in your hearts, right? Be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you have. And they said, you know what? You could throw us in the fire. Our God will be able to rescue us. That's why we have hope. But even if he doesn't, right, he will still be worthy of our worship. Right? That's Daniel. There's in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8, Stephen being stoned, first martyr, says, while they were gnashing their teeth at him, his face began to shine as he testified to the reality of Jesus. And while he was being stoned, he said, forgive them for what they are doing. And with that persecution, revival began to break out as well. Acts chapter, I forget where it is in Acts, Paul and Silas being beaten, thrown in jail, right? Thrown in jail for proclaiming the message of Christ. They're told to stop. They don't, they get thrown in jail. It says, what are they doing in jail? Now listen, if persecution is an opportunity for the gospel to go forth, if when you close your eyes and pray, people make fun of you instead of you saying, shut up, dude, what's wrong with you? Instead of saying that, but with gentleness and respect, you talk about the hope that you have. That persecution becomes an opportunity for you to spread the gospel. So here's, if, if, if that's really the case, if persecution opens the door to the spread of the gospel, then it's no longer about how can I just survive this persecution. All of a sudden, we become on the attack. We become on the offensive. It's not, oh my gosh, I need to be defensive. I need to be on guard. Instead, it's this is an opportunity and we're on the, we're on the move. We're thinking, how can I use this as an opportunity for the gospel to go forth? And so here's Paul, here's Silas. They're in jail. But instead of counting down the days until they're released, what do they do? It says they began to pray and to sing hymns to God. And it says while they were doing that, the other prisoners were listening. It is unbelievable. That they, they get thrown in jail for their faith in Jesus Christ. And instead of just nursing their wounds and saying, hey, it's going to be okay and hugging each other, they lift their eyes upwards and they begin to praise and worship God. And other prisoners are listening. The prison doors bust open and they walk out without. And people are like, that's a miracle of God. And the gospel continues to go forth. There. It's like if persecution is an open door to the gospel to go forth, then the gospel is bigger than my comfort. It's bigger than my suffering. It's bigger than my family. You know, Keith Green writes this song. I, um, it's a really hard song 
for me to wrap my arms around, wrap my mind around. It's called I Pledge My Head to Heaven for the Gospel. Um, Keith Green was a radical. He died at the age of 28, not as a martyr, but he died in a plane crash. But his life was just completely set out for the gospel. And in one line, in the third verse of this, he just talks about how he pledges himself to heaven for the gospel. He pledges his wife for the gospel. says, I'll never love you more than the one who saved my soul. And then he says in the third verse, he says about his, his son. I think it was his only son. He said, I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel. Though he's kicked and beaten, ridiculed, and scorned. I will teach him to rejoice and lift a thankful, praising voice and to be like him who bore the nails and crown of thorns. And he's saying, I pledge my son, my young son to heaven for the gospel. Saying, my son, the gospel is worth everything that you have. Even if it means being kicked and beaten, ridiculed and scorned, I'm not going to tell you to avoid that. I'm going to say in that moment, if it comes, then to continue to rejoice because Jesus is bigger and greater than the suffering of your body. And their persecution, and that's the examination of our faith. Is he really the Lord of everything that we are? Because, again, throughout the world, this is happening. People giving up their families in order to testify to the reality of Jesus Christ. And it's just that our faith hasn't been tested in this way. In, I, let, me read, let me read you this, this story. This is Randy Alcorn tells us, 1999, January 23rd. Okay, 1999, 13 years ago, 14 years ago. A guy named Graham Staines. Okay, Graham Staines was preaching at a youth conference in the jungles of India. In the jungles of India, he's preaching. He's got a couple sons, Philip and, and Timothy. Philip is 11. Timothy is 6. He's out there preaching in the jungles. A jungle, no place to sleep. So the three of them, they sleep in their Jeep. At midnight, January 23rd. Okay, midnight, January 23rd, these militant Muslims, uh, Hindus come. Militant Hindus come, and they set fire to the Jeep. Um, these guys killed. All three of them die in a fire. When the fire uh, goes out, uh, cools down, they find Graham Stains, the father, wrapped around his two kids, and all of them charred to death. So here, let me read this part of it. Graham's wife, Gladys, okay, and his 13-year-old daughter, Esther, were not there. They survived, and uh, they were on the front page of every newspaper in India, a billion people read, this is what Gladys said, billion people read this. I have only one message for the people of India. I'm not bitter, neither am I angry, but I have one great desire, that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. So she decided to stay in India, and this is what she said. My husband and our children have sacrificed their lives for this nation. India is my home. I hope to be here and continue to serve the needy. The 13-year-old daughter, Esther, they said, what do you think? How do you feel about the murder of your father? And this is what she said. I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him. 13 years old. The testing of her faith 
the examination of her faith, she proved to be faithful. Christ is Lord. And a a billion people in India saw the hope of Jesus Christ, read the hope of Jesus Christ through the persecution that they endured. Guys, this is coming to America. It's coming. Deep in our hearts, do we love this Jesus? Is he really our Lord? Are we willing to suffer persecution for the sake of the gospel? This is the reality, going to be the reality for our children if we don't see it in our lifetime. But I think we will. I'm pretty sure we will in our lifetime. And I don't say this because I got some kind of prophetic word, but I just, the winds of society and culture are changing in such a way that this is going to be our lot in life. At that point in time, the question is, is Christ worth it to us? The last thing that we see then, the last thing that we see, right, persecution is the examination of our faith. It opens the door for the spread of the gospel. It's an opportunity, but the last thing, persecution um, is not defeat. It's not defeat. Verse 18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, through whom also he went and preached the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago. I'll get to that in a second. But here's, let me me just give you the point and then I'll I'll, I'll tell you. Here's why it's it's not the end, because God will vindicate his people. If we suffer for our faith, it's not the end because God will vindicate his, vindicate his people. What does vindication mean? It means when we're proven right. At the end of the day, we're proven right. Vindication is sweet, especially when we're living in among, when we have the mi- minority opinion. Right? Vindication is when um, you're with a group of friends, right? You're with a group of friends and, and they throw out some questions. A trivia question may be, uh, what's the capital of such and such state or what's the capital of this country or um, how do you spell such and such thing? And everyone starts giving their answer. And everyone's answer is the same, except for you, because you don't think that's right. You're like, no, no, I don't think that's right. And, and you say, I think the, the capital of Florida is, uh, is Tallahassee. And everyone's laughing at you. They're making fun of you. Nah, you dummy, it's Miami. <laughs> it's Gainesville, whatever it is. And they're making fun of you. And you're like, no, nah, I'm pretty sure it's Tallahassee. And they're like, ah, you're so stupid. You're so dumb. And then they go on Google, and they find out that you're right. right? That's vindication. It's so sweet. It's when you're playing Mafia. I talk about Mafia a lot, even though I haven't played in years, but I, Mafia has such good sermon illustrations. So here you're playing Mafia. It's a bunch of, it's a bunch, all of us are playing, 150 of us. We're playing Mafia, and I know, I'm not the cop, but I know that Andy is the Mafia. So I'm telling everyone, she's the Mafia, she's the Mafia. She's like, and all of you guys are like, no, no, he's so, you don't know anything. You're tr- untrustworthy. You're unreliable. You're always wrong with who you think is the Mafia. And so everyone turns on me and they kill me. And I'm like, oh, so sad. I'm dead, but I will be vindicated when the narrator says, Andy was a Mafia. And you guys are all like, oh, my gosh. And I'm like, yes, vindication is mine. Yeah. Because vindication is when we're proved right, even when everybody else tells us that we're wrong, when everyone else is against us. Peter's saying persecution is not the end because God will vindicate us at the end of it all. 
Right? And he, go, he, explain, he explains this in the, the weirdest way possible. In verse 18, he's talking about Jesus. And then starting in verse 18, um, I don't know if any of you guys read this passage very carefully, but it's weird. Here's what it says. Jesus was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. That's fine. Verse 19. Through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago while, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What the heck does that mean? Hey, when did Jesus preach to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah? What is he talking about? Martin Luther said, this is the most obscure passage in the Bible. And he said, I still don't know what it, what it means. So let me, uh, let me take a stab at it. Not, this is not like my ingenuity. But throughout history, three common interpretations. And I'll tell you which one I believe because it's the majority opinion. Here, here. The first one says this. Jesus died on a Friday. He rose again on Sunday. The first view says that in between these two days, Jesus went to hell and started preaching to these prisoner spirits, telling them that they need to repent. Yeah, that's what a lot, some people believe. They don't think that's true. Why? Because it's just weird, right? It's just weird. The Bible never really says that after you die, you get a second chance. Like Jesus is going to go to you and he's going to preach to you. So that, that's a bad idea. Another, here is another idea is that in the time of Noah, the spirit of Jesus went through Noah and started preaching to people in Noah's time through Noah. Right? These spirits who are now in prison who were disobedient long ago. Okay, so, so there's some famous people like John Piper who believe that this is, this is the right viewpoint. I don't believe, and it's risky to disagree with Piper, but I don't agree with him on this one. The other viewpoint says this, that Jesus died, he rose again, and in his resurrection and in his ascension, uh, he is proclaiming to the world, okay, not a proclamation, not a preaching of you need to repent, but it is a proclamation that he is Lord, Lord of all, and that all demons and all spirits are subject to him. Okay, that's what um, a lot of scholars believe. That's what I believe to be the case. Because it also fits in line with what he's saying here. He tells in verse 18, Christ died once and for all. Um, and then it says in verse uh, 21, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 22, has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. So you see Jesus being falsely accused and being killed for his faith. He died, he rose again, he ascended, and he's now seated in heaven. Right? This is the cycle of vindication here. This is why I say that persecution is not the end. Jesus persecuted, suffered innocently, but he is vindicated by God as he sits at the right hand of the Father. And in order to explain that, he uses this example of Noah. Okay, here's Noah. He was a righteous man in his generation. He was, And Noah tells the minority of believers, the believers in Asia Minor, and he tells us, who are living as a minority in a dominant secular culture, using the example of Noah, here's how you can be a righteous minority even when everyone is making fun of you and persecuting you. Here's Noah. Only eight of them were saved. But God gave him the word, said this flood is going to come, judgment is going to come. And the same waters that save eight are going to be the waters that bring judgment on the others. The same cross that saves is the same cross that when rejected 
is going to lead to the condemnation of those who don't put their faith in Christ. So here's Noah, 120 years. As he's building this ark, people are making fun of him. And no doubt they're asking him, what are you doing? There's nothing is happening here. And Noah says, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And even though everyone is ridiculing, everyone is making fun of him, no one is agreeing with him, everyone is telling him, you've gone senile, crazy old Noah. Everyone's making fun of him, but he remains true and he remains faithful as this minority culture, as this minority group. And by faith, Noah is saved, and there he is vindicated when the floodwaters begin to come. Saying, in the same way, in the same way, this is you. People might ridicule and you say, hey, nothing is happening. It ain't nothing coming right now. But you're saying, it is going to come. It is going to come. And I need to find my safety in the provision of God. See, all this that Peter's talking about, he's talking about Jesus. He's not talking about Noah because Noah, right after this whole ark sequence happens, he gets, finds himself in this messy, drunken stupor and realizes that he's not the hero that we thought he was. This is in the same way, people of Asia Minor, same way people of Orlando, as we seek to be a righteous minority, Maybe that means being passed over for a promotion at work because we say I'm not going to work on Sunday out of my devotion to Christ. Maybe that means you can't make it, you can't get a a certain position in that club or in that group and that people that you're hanging out with because they make fun of you because you don't do the things that you do, uh, that they do. I was at at McDonald's doing some work, uh, drinking a coffee, and there were some people from a, a local high school nearby, and they were talking about these people, three guys, and they're talking about these girls in their high school. And they're talking about the sexual conquest that these boys had. And they're saying this one girl is not, has never had sex. She's a virgin. And these people are making fun of her. Like, no way. And she's not. Maybe, that, maybe that's what it means. For us to stand up, to be pure, to be sexually pure and chaste in an unpure, impure generation. And to say, you know what, I'm going to stand my ground. And even if people make fun of me, that's the choice that I make. Because to me, Jesus Christ is Lord, even if it means being persecuted, even if it means being made fun of. It's that we don't do the things that the other people do. And even, even if that means being ridiculed and made fun of. But we stand our ground because we believe Jesus Christ is worth it. Because he's worth it. Because he's worth it in every decision and every choice we have to make, he's worth it. And so we stand for what we believe in. We stand firm in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And Peter says, even if you fail like Noah did, your vindication will come because there is another who did not fail. Because Jesus Christ, verse 18, died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And he did what we couldn't do and he forgave us all of our sins. He blotted out our transgressions. So that the worst thing that can happen to us in this world, persecution leading to death, will lead us to a resurrection that will lead to our vindication. Like Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He's Lord of all. He's greater than any government authority. He's greater than any person who holds a whip, who holds a gun, who holds anything up against us. And he's saying, persecution, it happened to me. It's going to happen to all who follow me. But it's never the end. It is never the end. It's never the end. You will be vindicated. And one day, and all the years of pain won't seem to matter, when vindication comes and we behold our teacher, 
and our King. Let's pray together. Have you been tested in your faith? Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, that the life that he gives to us is a life in abundance. It's life the way that it was meant to be lived. Joy and peace, that's all ours. But at the same time, This world is not our home. And the full release of our inheritance will not be given to us until we get home. And until that time, we're living in enemy territory. And that doesn't mean that we should seek out suffering, seek out persecution. But it means that we be faithful to Christ, no matter what the cost. And when we do, it's these believers in other places that encourage us. Their faith proved of more worth than gold is able to endure suffering, persecution, the whip, the torture, the imprisonment. Those things cannot take this faith away from these believers whose faith has been tested because they declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. The word for us today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, one day, maybe in your lifetime, maybe not, But one day persecution will come in your heart. Set apart Christ as Lord now so that you can be ready and not fear later. Persecution will come, if not to us, to our children. Prepare our children to be hated in this world by teaching them that the worth of Jesus Christ is far greater than anything else in this life. Let's pray for a few moments right now and just ask the Lord God, Father, deepen my faith. Let my faith go deep in order that it would not be shaken by the things of life. It won't be shaken by the hardships, challenges, persecution to come. Lord, help me to stand on you. Help me to stand firm in my heart, setting apart Christ as Lord. Let's pray together for a few moments. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And I think the temptation is for us to read through the Bible and to pick out the parts that have good promises that comfort us and that encourage us. And and certainly this passage we read does. But at the same time, the teaching throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, through the life of Jesus, the prophets, the apostles, Hebrews 11, the testimony of saints throughout the world, throughout history, the past 2,000 years, and even now, 
is that Jesus was right and the Bible was right when it tells us that we're living in enemy territory. And when life is war, it makes us long for home. And throughout the world, our believers, our brothers and sisters long for home. And Jesus, a simple reminder through watching kids and watching soldiers is that if life is a playground, then we never want to go home. But if life is a battleground, then the longing of our heart will be, God, just keep me safe until I get home. Father, let your spirit convict our hearts and awaken sobriety in us. We'd embrace the call of Christ to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves and to follow him who had no place to lay his head because he knew that this world is not his home. The cost may be high, but it's only because the grace is so infinitely higher. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that you are bigger, stronger, greater than any temptation, any persecution, any Caesar that we might face. Thank you for vindication that is to come. Thank you for the hope that is lasting. Help us to cherish that. And would you be in all of our hearts and in our church, would you be our Lord? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.